0: Hello, listener, and welcome to Straight Shot Health Talk. This is the podcast that provides honest and straightforward information about health, wellness, and how to survive our crazy healthcare system. This is for people who want to focus on getting well instead of just treating symptoms. Sound like you? Then let's get started. All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Straight Shot Health Talk. I am your host, Dr. Kevin. And with us today is Jeff Pledger. Now, Jeff Pledger is a senior financial analyst for Verizon, where he has worked for the past 23 years. Yet despite his busy schedule, he continues to make time for nonprofit work. This has included being the immediate past president of Verizon's Disabilities Issues Awareness Leaders, also known as DIAL, which advocates for Verizon employees and customers with disabilities. He is also involved with Lions Club International and Guiding Eyes for the Blind. Now, you may have guessed just from this introduction that Jeff his himself blind but he wasn't always so and he's here with us today to tell his story about when he became blind but more importantly what he learned after Jeff great to have you on straight shot health talk thanks for coming on
1: good morning thanks Kevin glad to be here
0: all right now I, I kind of gave a little bit of that of your background story but, but could you tell us what you're involved with now and what you're kind of doing in this this uh present time
1: um let me go back to one of your first questions, um, how I went blind and what of the, some of the things that I learned from coming out of uh, knowing the fact that I once could see and now all of a sudden I don't see. Let, let, let's go that route first.
0: Okay, sounds good.
1: We talk about what, what's present day happening. Okay. I've been blind for 30 years. Um, I went blind back in 1984 through a very rare form of meningitis and encephalitis cryptococcal meningitis and encephalitis took my eyesight, which is in a very aggressive form of meningitis, bacterial. No idea how I got it. The year that I got it, there were four other cases that happened in New York State, lower New York State, Westchester County and New York City. And the state health department was considering um, declaring it an epidemic, but they didn't do so because for whatever reason, it fizzled out after the four of us contracted it. And and we moved on. I was getting, I worked for a fruit and vegetable wholesaler at the time. Uh, I'd spent time in the military, came back out, did some computer work was going to college and part-time and was looking at potentially buying the uh, wholesaler as, as a opportunity for a small business venture that I would take on with myself and the owner's son. And in the process of, um, going through that that's when i contracted the meningitis now i had these severe headaches that were actually debilitating enough to knock you off your feet Hmm. i was getting violently ill at prescribed times of the day you could set your watch to it it. uh was really not a pleasant moment at all in any case though
0: now can can i interrupt Uh you real quick i'm sorry to interrupt you but did you have headaches before this happened. Like, was this something that you're just like, "Oh, these are my standard headaches," or were these new headaches for you?
1: Um, they were new headaches. Okay. Uh, and in fact, um, that was part of the issue. Uh, um, I-, I went to um, an ear, nose, and throat specialist who told me I had a deviated septum, and that if I didn't get a nose job, I would have these headaches for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> there was a slight uh, misdiagnosis there, but that's okay. We're we're not going to go into that, but. <laughs> In any case, um, I ended up getting admitted into the hospital for severe dehydration and uh, uh, put potential um, uh, sinusitis and, and other ailments, general ailments that my GP decided to get me in on. And he did so because I called him up that final day and told him I needed to go to the hospital. And he questioned why, and I proceeded to get violently ill over the phone and said, because that's the seventh time... This morning, I'm now doing the dry heaves. This is not fun anymore. So they brought me into the the hospital, St. Agnes Hospital in White Plains, New York. They did all the tests, the EKG, you know, the the electrocardiogram, all that stuff. And they did a CAT scan, which I was told the doctor said looked funky. Hmm. Just didn't look right. And uh, so they scheduled me for a uh, spinal tap okay. on that following Monday. Uh, I went in on a Saturday. Uh, I went in on a Friday, stayed Saturday, Sunday, did all the tests over the weekend. On the Monday, they were scheduling me for the for the um, um, spinal tap. Um, interestingly enough. I watched football the whole weekend long while I was in the hospital read the newspaper Um, Monday night football that day was September 17th I believe yeah I think it was the 17th uh, of September or it might have been the 14th but it was probably the most memorable day of Monday night football ever remember 1984 was Jim Kelly and Dan Marino's rookie years (laughs) and so um when they came up with that, uh, it was the Buffalo Bills against the Miami Dolphins. Well, that that game was, again, 24 nothing. Buffalo just took off in the first quarter like gangbusters. Dan Deardorff and Frank Gifford are there saying, "Up, oh, Miami should go home, go in the locker room, take off their pads and just go home. They're getting a spiking of their life. And Howard Cosell, the indelible announcer of great... Uh, Vocal Vocal means came up with, don't give up on the wizard in Miami just yet. And uh, Dan Marino and Don Shula engineered a second quarter comeback that tied the game on the last play of the half. So 24-24, and I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm kind of tired. They're not going to tell me anything new at halftime. I'll take a little nap. I'll wake up, watch the rest of the game. Well, it was at that point that I slipped into a coma. Uh, for five days, uh, really quite uh, quite tragic uh, of the event. Uh, Be uh, and one might say embarrassing because <laughs> I didn't realize it was a coma at all. You know, but the nurses came in, saw me asleep, turned off the TV, pulled the covers up to my neck, patted me on the head, and you know I figured I was knocked out for the night. They realized it was a problem the next morning. <clears throat> excuse me when they could not wake me for breakfast. They said, oops, we got a problem. Five days later, I came out of the coma and um, it was complete blackness. And I heard people laughing and crying, which were my mom and my godparents. I said, well, something's really funny and something must be so funny that you're belly laughing so hard that you're crying, But Before you clue me into what it is, someone turn on the damn lights so I can see what the hell's going on. And that's when my mom came up to me and cradled me and said, I got good news and bad news. What would you like first? I said, the good news would help. She goes, you're alive. I go, okay, that works. (laughs) the bad news is, and apparently you're blind. Oh, oh my God. I fell back into the pillows. And from that point forward, I started saying to myself, I'm not going to let this beat me. I'm going to find a way to to get past this. Now, the thing that's interesting is that I not only came out of the coma blind, but I was also paralyzed on my left arm and my leg, (laughs) virtually immovable. That's how bad the the nerves were affected in my left arm and leg. However, I've since been able to regain that. Um, Part of the thing that I think that's interesting about this story is that I was an athlete in high school, played football, basketball, baseball, did that in college as well, and I looked to athletics as a means to get myself back into finding a way to network and to find avenues of of release for anxieties and frustration. Um, While working as a butcher for my uncle when I was sighted, one of my close friends who's uh, a below-the-knee amputee. Ray Viscomi uh, told me of a track club called the Achilles track club in New York city that trained athletes with disabilities to do the New York city marathon. I'm like, wow, that sounds so cool. I got to look into it. So my cousin, Peter, and I started training and, and, you know, the first thing was, you know, try to get myself to the point of getting to be able to run a mile nonstop, then two miles then three miles then you know, four, then six miles. And I did a 10 K and we thought, Oh, wow we 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 are the bad we are the bad boys of the crowd we did a 10k you know so on and so forth and then I went downtown in New York City and met up with the Achilles Track Club and ran the Northwind 5 miler back in 1986 yes 86 and uh, I met with the international president Dick Trom and he said you know come along with me I, I want to run with you a little bit and talk to you so we're Doing a slow jog to cool down he goes you know you have great marathon potential and i said stop right there and he stopped and he goes and i looked at him squarely i said you have to start sharing the drugs that you've been taking <laughs> right now if you think i'm great marathon material because i'm just not seeing that at this point in time do you know how long a marathon is and he goes yeah it's 26.2 miles I go, and how many have you done? He says, to date, um, 15. I'm like, get out of here. You're at above the knee amputee. He goes, no, it's not a problem. It's a matter of understanding internal fortitude, strength, inner strength, and being able to have faith and confidence in yourself and to train properly.
0: Now, Jeff, how long after you became blind were you running like this?
1: Within a year. Within a year. Within a year. Oh, my God. I, I went blind on September of 1984, 1985, that October I did my first 10K. Next November, 1986, I did my first marathon, New York City Marathon. And I did it in three hours, 59 minutes, and eight seconds. So I broke four hours in the first one. So
0: just just so we don't miss anything here, though, you're 27 years old. Yep. You fall asleep at halftime watching football, and you wake up and you're blind.
1: Yep, five days later.
0: Now what? I, I'm assuming when you woke up, the first thing you, you didn't say was, I'm going to start running and everything. That you, you oh, no,
1: no, no. The first thing, you, you go across, and, and I like to look at it as four stages of a tragic situation in a human being. There's shock, denial, anger, and acceptance and adjustment. And the shock is, oh, my God, I'm blind. I'm paralyzed. Holy cow. Then there's the denial stage, where surely with all of medical technology today, this is temporary. This is not permanent. Then there's anger, and you're angry at everything because you realize it's no longer temporary. It is permanent. Um, you're angry at your family. You're angry at friends. You're angry at strangers. You're angry at the mosquito that bites you, and you don't know it's bitten, till you, bitten you until it bites you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah, but And People can be ingrained in these first three stages for any length of time. There's no, per, you know, set uh, time period of you know weeks, days, months, years. It could be decades. And I think that's an important part to to mention here because
0: I, I, we see that quite often. Or at least I saw that often is. You know there is a shock and there's a grieving process absolutely and then people get stuck in two places that i see either the anger stage but often with this idea of the of the health system is going to find something magic right and um you know when did you decide i mean there's a lot of great stuff that we can do in, in the medical field but there but in a lot of ways we there's a lot of over promising um you know for for certain things specifically and what i would like to know is when did you make that transition from that anger and for that when, you know, waiting for someone else to do something to acceptance and moving forward with I what, what can I do for myself kind of uh, attitude?
1: It was interesting when I was in the hospital. I was in the hospital for 93 days, and I remember the doctors coming in. I said, so when is this going to reverse? And they said, we don't know. We have no idea. We can't commit. And they would hold a finger or their hands and shake their fingers in front of my face and tell me how many am I holding up? And sometimes I I could see how many there were and sometimes I couldn't. But six months after I got out of the hospital, I saw a doctor by the name of Dr. Sears at Yale University who was doing um, extensive research with nerve cells because the damage for me is not my eye, it's my nerve. Mm -hmm. Um, the, The eye is perfectly healthy, the corona, the lens, are fine. The rods and cones went on a slight vacation, uh, but what happens is, is the image gets transmitted to the back of the eye, the retina, which is healthy, and it only 15 percent of my optic nerve is, is pink. So that's what gets uh, the image transmitted back to the brain. It allows me to see the shadow vision. But again, let me I digress <laughs> a little here. Doctor Sears told me after being blind for six months that I suffered from optic atrophy and that um, it was going to be some time before I would be able to see again because the medical field was not looking to do individual nerve cells. They were looking to try to do things more with the spinal cord and rejuvenation of the spinal cord for people with muscular dystrophy and MS and things of that nature than individual nerve cells. Um, It was at that point in time that I realized I had to start moving forward and i got my first guide dog um vincenzo was his name a beautiful golden retriever uh move forward with that and i thought i was actually out of the anger stage
0: (laughs) and and that's six months after
1: yeah okay i thought i was out of it you know i thought you know okay i'm past this i'm moving forward in life i've got a guide dog i'm going back to college i'm going to do this i'm going to do that i'm starting to run I'm starting to do different things but you know then it comes up and I realized I wasn't out of anger and I was stuck in anger for at least another year but I didn't realize it Mm -hmm. well that's the puppies outside
0: (laughs) 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 so so you you six months later you think you're over anger you decide. You, at least you're you're pushing forward now. You're getting a guide dog. You're getting on with yep. your life. And I'm not. And I, again, you could at this point in time, you still could be seeing doctors. You could still be looking yep. for medical solutions. But you're also taking an active role in your own health. Yep. When did you realize you were still you still had that retained anger?
1: I had gone through a year of community college, and um, had a. Really good GPA uh, as far as that went. I actually graduated with uh, high honors, 3.77 GPA from Westchester Community College. But I went through a full year and did really well. Was in a summer class with an adjunct professor who felt it was more important for her to spend her time doing softball than actually coming to class on time to teach us. And I felt if she could not give us the respect of me being a student, who's paying for the class. I waited a half an hour. You know, I'm do- I'm sorry, I'm done.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and we went back to discuss my grades. I ended up, <laughs> here's the thing where I realized it was still an anger. I got a B plus. <laughs> I was angry because I got a B plus. And, and I realized afterwards when I came out, I had a sign on my dog that says, please don't pet me or feed me. And after having this Heated discussion with this adjunct professor um, who wasn't going to budge on the grade. And, you know, I felt slighted and came back huffing and puffing and stomping my feet. Sat down with the dog. Person came up to me, says, Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful dog, and started petting the dog. And I railed into this person fiercely, saying, I'm sorry, I'm blind. The sign on the dog's harness is for those of you who are sighted. Is it that you can't read or you just don't want to pay attention to the sign that says please do not pet me I'm a working guy dog
2: <laughs> oh jeez
1: <laughs> um, and a friend of mine who was very dear and near to me came up to me and said Jeff after this person you know apologized and walked away he said Jeff I'm telling you truthfully you're angry at the world and you're angry with yourself and you need to take a chill pill because you're gonna make not as many friends as you need to, and you're going to need friends out there in the world to help network you through this, through your life and assist you. So, you know, I it was a time of reflection, and I sat back and uh, did some reflection on it. Uh, I think there was quite a few beers involved with it and some single malt scotch over a, a span of a week that caused me to reflect, and I realized, hey... <laughs> I really do have to pay attention to being, you know, decent to people because if I'm going to ask them to help me, you know, and give me assistance in some manner, whether or not it's, excuse me, what street is this to? What does it say on the computer screen? To do you see my dog's harness somewhere? Or to what is the, what is the situation on the plate that you're giving me of food being arranged? You know, I have to learn to be nice to them. You know, it's only good things come back to you.
0: No, absolutely. And I think it's a lot of us re- will redirect that frustration and anger just like you did and as your as your friend had pointed out, you know, you you weren't what you weren't supposed to touch your dog, but you had blown it up into a le- much larger issue oh than God. it was. Yeah. Completely. And, you know, and I think we, we a lot of us do that quite often and uh, then of course that affects other relationships because the other person doesn't have that insight that you know, they don't know that you're when you're yelling you're actually probably visualizing that professor on the side at the same point but um no that's that's uh yeah so your your friend had observed you doing this i mean that's kind of
1: that he was in the room watched me doing this he was a he was he worked for the college as well Mm -hmm. and um you know he, he pulled me aside afterwards and we actually um as part of this we would go to lunch and do some long talking at lunch and i realized that um you know what I did not want to become, uh, and forgive, uh, forgive my um, description here. But there are people out there that have what is a very rare form of uh, of um, um, knowledge that gets sort of tied up in their head and can't get out. And we nicknamed it cranial rectosis.
0: Cranial rectosis. Okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> to simulate the fact that you have your head stuffed up, another part of one of your orifices.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's tough to see what's going on when that happens.
1: That's right. And the only thing that will remedy this is a cranial rectotomy.
0: <laughs> and that's what your friend did for you? Yes, he did. <laughs> well, and, I, and the other part of that is you, you were, I think, part, you know, one of the, and it is a medical term, cranial rectosis is definitely a medical term, is um, there's people that fight that, you know, that they they will have good friends family members or whatever trying to pull them out. And there are people that will that will continue, you know, that that for whatever reason at that moment in time they will fight and they want to keep their cranium stuck up their rectum. Yep. Um, And there's not much they can do until they decide to let go and actually
1: withdraw. And that's the important thing is understanding if they want to move forward in life, they have to let go. Mm -hmm. Um, And 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 that's where it worked for me. Uh, Part of the things that I remember and I started advocating for people who are blind and people with disabilities as soon as I was able to go back to college. I remember one of my mentors was the college president, Joe Hankin, really good friend of mine. First um, lecture or general assembly that I went to where he was speaking at, he said, I have an open door policy. If you have questions or issues or challenges, come in. My door is always open. My first year, my first two years of being there at Westchester Community College, Joe and I would have lunch maybe twice a week. Huh. I would walk in with a sandwich and say, okay, you want turkey or the uh, Italian coca? Take your pick. <laughs> and uh, we talked about doing things, of uh, making things accessible and usable on the campus. Now, he did this all prior to the Americans with Disability Act being passed in 1990. Huh. 1989, he actually got automatic doors put onto the, all of the uh, buildings there. He got screen readers and screen enlargement magnification um, software put onto the computers. Uh, he got installed in there um, other types of accessibility accommodations that were needed for students with disabilities. And he did this because he cared. He truly cared and he, I think he cared because he finally had a student with a disability myself coming to him saying we need to change this Mm -hmm. so it started there at at westchester community college it went on down to nyu i did the same things at nyu um and i was able to build bridges and networks at, at every one of these institutions it worked also when i went to gw for my masters um i was fortunate enough when i was hired by bell atlantic that i did the exact same thing when i came into the corporation i started to build networks So, those were the things that I think are the important things to take as a valuable lesson. Don't look to burn bridges, but look to build networks from the bridges that you make in friendships. And part of those came from when I started doing the running, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the athletics. I I started running with a group of individuals called the Scarsdale Antiques. uh, And they were a wonderful group of individuals. Now mind you, some of them were 40, 50, 60 years old, but they were all outstanding runners. My particular mentor, a gentleman by the name of John Steger, was probably one of the top blind masters runners in the country. At that time when I had met him, he had run five or six sub three hour marathons already. Huh. That's pretty fast. That's under a 6:27 per minute mile for 26 miles. Yeah. So were all of these blind runners then? Oh, no, 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 no. They were all sighted. Oh, okay. They were sighted runners. I used them as guides. Oh, okay. To run alongside with me. And in the and the fact of becoming guides with them, we built up the friendships. You know, we 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 talked on on our runs. We we, we discussed um, uh, you know, challenges and things in life. And they gave me their perspective so that I could help to mold it into my own. So when you're
0: on these runs and and working with all these different individuals, including, uh, you know, NYU and Westchester Community College, you were increasing awareness of people with blindness or other disabilities, but you were doing it in a way that was not necessarily angry. It was saying, this is what, who I am. This is how I am. This is things that would, that, I think others would be would help others or how are you doing this?
1: Well, actually I started the Westchester chapter of the Achilles Track Club Uh um, which was a really cool thing to do and I was able to train in my tenure of doing that for six years um, I actually trained a dozen athletes with disabilities to do the New York City Marathon which was a whole lot of fun Mm -hmm. Um, the, The fun thing that comes out of this is that you learn to help help others see a vision that they can attain even though it's even though it was my vision so and and the way I was actually able to transfer this was giving up my vision from being my own so that it could become theirs ah uh, okay, yeah, you know that transference that happened so that 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 was really some of the the fun things that came about now it was fun you know the, the um we used to call it uh, when I ran with the athletes, they would run with some of the guides, and the whole idea was I would s- carefully select guides to run with specific athletes so that the guides would be you know teamed up appropriately. Well, I had this one young gentleman who was blind and came from the uk uh, uh, Daniel coster was his name a uh, really great young man. he's still a good friend of mine he decided he wasn't going to pay attention to his guides, you know, telling him about understanding pacing and things like that. And so that, you know, they told me, they told me about it. I said, okay, I'll take care of it. And so I took him out for a run on a three mile run, six mile run actually on the SUNY purchase campus, which was right close to his house. So we ran on the shoulder of the road. Uh, He ran, I ran as his guide and uh, I actually could feel the stripe of the uh, paint on the, shoulder so i could actually use that as a guiding point for myself around the whole campus the three mile loop so we do three miles we're in our fourth mile and uh, yeah, i say daniel you're running pretty good you're feeling okay he goes yeah i said well why don't we pick it up the pace a little bit so we picked up the pace a little bit do that for a quarter of a mile i said you're still looking strong let's pick it up again so i started to push him a little bit you know, we get to a top of a hill, and all of a sudden he says, yeah, I, I'm not feeling so good. Can we sort of kick it back? I'm like, oh, you're feeling great. You want to kick it up another notch. Love the challenge. Let's do it some more. We did this for about three more times before he finally just stopped and said, I'm done. I said, okay, I understand you're done. So did you learn the lesson? And he goes, yeah, I think so. Never to run with you again. I'm like, no. <laughs> The lesson is pay attention to what your guide tells you.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, listen to what's happening. You know, understand. So if if you know if, if you don't pay attention to your guide, your guide is there understanding because they see things, they see things that you may not be you know understanding and you need to listen to them. All right? So that was a you know a valuable lesson that he did. And I actually have that done to me several times by some of the scars antiques. John Steger in particular did that to me one time.
0: <laughs> well, and, and that brings up another important point is sometimes you need you know there's people who, who have perspective that we don't have because we are wrapped up in our own emotions and thoughts and our own little bubbles here and it is very hard to see beyond that and having someone outside that can give you some objective clear information and guidance uh, is key but you have to be willing to listen to them.
1: Uh, exactly. And part of the things that I guess that uh, I, I think is important to understand is that, you know, let me paint the picture clearly. I did not have successes completely all the time from going blind. There were failures along the way. Um, and it was from the failures that I learned how to achieve success. So it's that understanding of the yin and the yang in life, that balance of, of between good and evil or bad to good or, or however you want to look at it, however you want to portray it. But, and, and I always believe this is very important. If you had nothing but successes in your life, then how can you judge your life has been successful if you've never experienced failure?
0: No, absolutely. Cause you have nothing yeah. to yeah. compare it to. And yeah, even, right. even worse, what happens when you experience your first failure? Yeah. You know, it, <laughs>
1: god knows i can tell you this we have mbas that i've met along the way in my life you know that you know i've been successful all my life i've never failed and first time they failed they crumble to the ground like a child Mm -hmm, mm
2: you
1: know virtually curl up in a fetal position and mommy mommy it's like okay come on unwrap let's figure out what you're doing and see how you're gonna succeed it'll be okay
0: you know, that makes me think of something is, you know, because you did you went blind at a at an age when most people would have crumbled if they hadn't had failure in your past. So when you were younger, I mean, before you lost your sight, were there failures that you had or life lessons that you learned that you think prepared you for that
1: event? Um. Yeah, I think I had challenges in life. Um, my first time trying to go to college was not successful. Went into the military, came out because my on a. Uh, honorable discharge because my dad passed away, second attempt at college was not successful for various reasons, Uh, you know, decided to really not go down the college route but was looking to try to buy the business and do things. um, You also have to remember, this was 1980s, for those who are not privy to that, and this was also New York. I was living in Westchester County, which was 25 miles north of New York City. So, Club 52, you know, all the disco was the rage. This was the decade of me. (laughs) You know, that was the me decade. So, again, it was something that one could say is, you know, you were working singularly for yourself to gain whatever things that you could. And if you had to step over other people, and and trash them in the process to get what you wanted you did. Mm -hmm. I was very good at that. Um, I I look at my wife, and we talk quite openly and candidly to each other, and I readily admit that if my wife had met me before I went blind, she would not have liked me, because I was a, I think the Jewish community calls it best, a schmuck. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's what I was, I was not a really nice person. I did a 180 degree turnaround after I went blind to realize if I expect the world to work with me and, you know, assist me, then I have to start being nicer to the world and start learning how to uh, interact and communicate with the world. So let me bring this around to something that I think that's really important because in understanding, you know, the, the successes and failures, I've done something in my life all throughout my life. What I think is really important it's what's called a SWOT analysis, where you do your you look at your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and your threats. Okay. And you look at them. List list all your strengths, list all your weaknesses, list all your opportunities, and list all your threats. You you do it in a square, do a plus sign. The top row is strengths and weaknesses. The bottom row is uh, opportunities and threats. Okay. So, weaknesses correlate to opportunities, threats correlate to strengths. Okay. The biggest weakness that we have as human beings out there is the fear of failure. That's our biggest weakness. And that's the toughest one to overcome. And what it, what it is needed is innovative and engaging ways in which to change attitudes that ultimately have an impact on behavior. Mm-hmm. And this goes back to my thoughts of inner visions and it's a book that i'm writing inner visions helping you to see your mission and your mission and vision with eyes closed and the the basic statement is this the things that are important to you in your life from a personal and professional level are not always viewed through your physical eyes but they're always perceived through your mind's eye and embraced within your soul Mm-hmm. No, no let, let me say that one more time. The things that are important to you in your life that bring value and importance that are that from a personal and professional perspective are not always viewed through your physical eye, but they're perceived through your mind's eye and then embraced within your soul. That's the premise that I go forward in life. Um, and, and looking to help understand those things I think is a valuable tool that I actually learned on what we used to call the LSD runs, the long, slow distance runs Uh that we did for marathon training. We developed what we call the Spartan method of, of, of training. Take three small pebbles round, no jagged edges, put them in your left shoe as you did these long 20 milers. Okay. And what you learned to do was the first pebble was to acknowledge pain. The second pebble was to understand pain. And the third pebble represented embracing pain. Yeah. And once you got through the third pebble, you learned how you could curl those pebbles underneath your toes so they no longer became painful. And so that you could then let the endorphins take hold and you got into that running zone. Well, that's, that's the same thing of happening with a weakness. You have to first understand what. No, I don't care what your weakness is. You have to first acknowledge that it's a weakness. Mm-hmm. Then you have to understand its weaknesses, understand all the factors associated with that weakness, and then you embrace that weakness so that you can eventually conquer it. Um, and and, and then move on past with it. It's it's what I've, you know, it's it's the. I think the takeaway that people can look forward to to moving forward to seeing how I was successful. Now, again, I've had failures Mm -hmm. in in life. I've done projects that were not as successful as always. You know, I didn't end up a straight-A student coming out of college, but I thought I did pretty well. I was a cum laude graduate from both uh, community to uh, NYU as well as GW. I'm in the process of starting my second master's. So the, the whole idea is judging You know, putting that level of the bar of where you deem it to be successful, you know, and then saying to yourself, okay, is that going to be good enough for me or do I want to inch the bar a notch higher? And if I do, how do I make myself successful and how do I reach that? But then also an understanding that, okay, because I inched it a couple of notches higher than what I had originally, and if I don't reach that first one, you know, I did get off the ground.
0: You 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 took a step acknowledging yeah, the step.
1: That's right.
0: Well, and and I like that framework that you have when it comes to weakness. Too, you, you have to acknowledge that it's there. You know, yes. a, a lot of us will will live in denial or we we kind of play that it's there, but we don't say, you know, what this has happened, uh-huh. and then to understand what has happened, and then and then really embrace and accept it. You know, and, yep. I, and that that's sort of the same. The, the stages that you went through with the uh, shock and anger and everything like that, you have to get that space where you, you basically recognize what it's there. You embrace it. And then is when you can really move forward.
1: Correct. That's when you can overcome it and move past it That's
0: and use it sometime in a lot of ways, use it for, yep. for the next stage.
1: Yep. Cause I'd the be idea in, is to build it, use it as the stepping stone so that you can move forward.
0: Cause the other part, I thought, think about that when you were talking about the inner vision, and you know you were talking about how you can't always see it with your with your vision, but you perceive it on the inside. Um, that made me think. Well, maybe you know if you go back to young Jeff, who wasn't the the nicest person in the world, uh, sometimes being able to see like that could keep us distracted from what that inner vision may be. Could, could mm-hmm. I mean, if you went back in time to to before you lost your eyesight, do you think? You know, would would you have learned this if you still had your sight, or would you have kind of kept going down that vision trail of of me, 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 80s generation, get what I get and step on people in the process?
1: Um, I think I probably would have done it for as long as I could have gotten away with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Got to remember, I was 27. Um, I've been told by women, both women and men, that I'm a good looking man. I'm handsome. Um, I have since... Has, you know we've talked regained the use of my left arm and left leg uh yeah, I probably would have continued down that um path of self destruction i would i'd call it more than anything else until um yeah y I came to a point where I recognized I wasn't going upwards anymore, but I was stuck in the bottom
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and you really have to get to, i think to that level um before you can um uh, truly start to make. Advances, you know, and in, in, in going forward. Let's say if you have a a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction, some something like that, you have to hit bottom first. Mm-hmm. I think before you can start to make steps going past, because you haven't really recognized the fact that bottom is there.
2: Uh huh. Uh
1: huh. You know, versus the fact of, um, gee, I've lost my. For me, the, the the bottom for me was losing my eyesight. Losing my eyesight and realizing. that I had to have a fat wallet and three handkerchiefs in my back pocket to make it look like I had a butt. (laughs) (laughs) Because I went into the hospital. I weighed 185 pounds. I came out of the hospital at 133. I did not lose any mass in my shoulders or my back. I lost it all in my ass and in my legs. Um, but I have since regained that back, you know. Uh, I remember, you know, when I first, you know, started, you know, eating and doing things and, and um, learning, you know, how to how to understand the blindness, I ballooned to like almost 200 pounds. And I looked at my doctor with my home health aide that was with me and I said, you know what, I'm going to start working out. I don't care if I have your clearance or not. I'm working out because I've never been this heavy in my life and I feel terrible. So again, it was having, I think, the wherewithal, the courage to challenge myself, to say enough is enough, time to take steps forward. And that's when I started running. And I actually, I'm now probably close to 215 pounds, 220 pounds, but I had gotten at that point in time down to 185, 180 pounds. Uh, As I, I remember, looking at some of my running mates and I said, Jeff, you, you know, you're running without a shirt. You're in a pair of shorts. You got a suntan. You're like a Greek Adonis as you're running down the road. I'm like, okay, that makes me feel good. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it was like, the whole, you know, it was that whole thing going back. And I said, thanks for the compliments. You know, let's move forward. Now let me go back to a, a bit more funny of a story here. When I met my wife, how I met my wife, I was going to school at NYU in my last years there, and I was working on a book project for um, for one of my professors, helping him to write a book. I was doing the research on it. Came into the White Plains Metro Station, the Metro North. I was looking good. I was 185 pounds. I had run a couple of marathons. I was looking real good. I had a good looking dog. I had a nice pair of uh, oh, with 10 jeans, I think it was, something like that one of those designer jeans back then. So I I looked good in jeans. I had a polo shirt on. I went to the Dunkin' Donuts there, got my coffee and apple bran muffin, went up the stairs around the corner, put the dog at sit, backpack off, drinking the coffee, eating the muffin. I'm happy. When all of a sudden I heard the sound of footsteps coming toward me across the marble floor. Now these weren't the clip, 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 clip of a fast walker, stomp, stomp, stomp of somebody angry, but a sachet. (laughs) <laughs> a very sexy sachet. step and slide step and slide and I said oh that is interesting I would love to meet what's inside the shoes that's making that sound so I looked at my dog and I said Vincenzo what do you think and all I heard from the dog was the tail swishing across the floor you know and I'm like okay how, do, how does a blind guy meet the woman that's infatuated. Now, granted, I assumed that it was a woman. God knows it could have been a, you know, a, a guy for all I know. But uh, I assumed naturally that it was a woman. How does a how does a blind man meet the woman that's infatuated his ears and intrigued his guide dog? Think, 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 Jeffrey. She's coming closer, closer, closer. I know. I'll do the old poor guy, blind guy spills the coffee routine. <laughs> So I naturally did that. Took my hand across the top, spilled the coffee, started making a fuss. Oh, she says, can I help you, sir? And I said, yes, you can. Became very cordial and decided to let her know to tell the station manager I did this and they can have somebody come out and clean it up so that uh, nobody falls and, you know, there's a pending lawsuit and nobody gets hurt. She goes, sure, I'll tell them. She comes back, they know, they said they'll take care of it, but I see you have You know, nothing to drink with that muffin. Can I offer to buy you a cup of coffee? Don't ask me how or where, but this very large, very green um, Italian monster, Dago monster, came out of my forehead, split my forehead open and said, no, thank you. I'll leave it dry. And she (laughs) said, okay, fine. Turned on her heels and just walked away. And I'm like, no, get back. Slammed it into my forehead. Get back in there. Back, back. Remember the old uh, Bella Lugosi with uh, Boris Karloff uh, movies? Uh, he played Dracula. Back, back. <laughs> I zipped up my forehead, grabbed the dog, grabbed the, uh, the, the, the muffin, the backpack, and told the dog, left, 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 no, your military do- left dog, not your civilian left. <laughs> Get outside, my heart is 300 feet up in the air, thinking I'm gonna find her without a problem. She's out on the platform. It immediately goes down to about a negative 250 because there's 300 people out there. And I'm thinking, oh man, this sucks. I should have just stayed in bed. I shouldn't have got up out of bed. All right, fine. And it was due to the fact of um, young gangs um, were throwing and uh, vandalizing the tracks, the Metro North tracks by throwing cinder blocks on the train tracks uh, some miles up the, up the line. Anyway, I'm standing there, I'm eating the muffin and it's dry. And this woman comes up, she says, you know, I lived in Baskin Ridge, New Jersey, and there were guide dogs all over there. Where, Where's your dog from? Is it from the same school in Baskin Ridge, New Jersey? I'm thinking to myself, oh, my God, my angel, she's back. <laughs> she's back. I'm not, I'm not, life is not lost. What do I do? I just answer the question. He's from Guiding Eyes for the Blind, Yorktown Heights, New York. And I shut up. Actually, I took the apple. I was taking, I'm nervous, you know, not knowing what to say, blah, 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 blah. So she hit me with a couple more questions, and I was striking out badly. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things were not going well. And she finally threw me that lifeline. (laughs) She would say, You know, I have the same color hair as your dog. I said, You do. You're a redhead. Well, let me introduce you to the dog. She goes, Oh, no, no, you don't have to do that. I said, No, it's easy got his harness off, put him at sit. They did low five with the left paw, low five with the right paw, high five with both paws. I said, wait, here's a really good trick. Put him at sit. I told him to stay. Took another bite out of the middle of the muffin, which now had a nice little curve to it, and I balanced it on his nose. And he's looking cross-eyed at the, at the muffin, saying, just give me the word, Dad. Just give me the word in its history. I said, you know, stay, stay. Can't have it yet. About five or six seconds later, I said, okay. He flips it up in the air, catches it. He's chomping on it. There are about a dozen people that are clapping about this. I felt pretty good. We were talking on the platform. We ended up talking on the train. I got her phone number. And life went on from there. But the interesting thing was I always thought that I had initiated that whole sequence of events. Uh And it was later on in life that my wife disclosed to me that No, it wasn't me. It was her because she always wanted a golden retriever ever since she was knee high.
0: (laughs) She married you for the dog.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then she kept me after the dog died.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, Jeff, we have been on here for a long time now, over 48 minutes. And uh, I could talk to you all day, but I don't want to take too much of your time. So before we end up, is there any last words that you have for the listeners here?
1: Um. Look to within yourself. If you find that you are having challenges in life, um, look to within yourself. And the, the easiest way I think to do that is take the mirror out of the bathroom or off the bureau in your bedroom and talk to it. Take the time to talk to yourself and really listen hard to what yourself says back to you because you have great ideas and you have great ways to overcome challenges and barriers. And they don't all have to be done by yourself. You can team up with others that can help to make life a little easier. So be, don't be afraid to put your hand out to say, um, I do have a limitation, but it's just this, can you offer me you know, assistance and only the assistance I need so that I can move forward in life and be willing to accept that assistance, whatever it is.
0: Yeah, no, No, I'm sorry to interrupt you there, but I I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think whether, you know, if you have a disability or not, whether you're blind or deaf or have lost a limb or in a wheelchair, whatever the case may be, if you have none of those, that's good advice to have. You know, is uh, have an honest conversation with yourself. Recognize, you know, whatever weaknesses that you have. Don't understand that those are weaknesses, but aren't going to, you know, they're not they're not chains. They're not keeping you chained anywhere. And uh, being willing to take and accept advice and help from other people. So,
1: yeah, and they become opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's really what you do is you change that weakness into an opportunity. And it's not having the the, the biggest fear we have is that we're afraid to fail. The greatest opportunity we have is we can change those fears of, of failure into opportunities of success.
0: Absolutely. And a perfect way to end that is, you know, instead of fearing failure, looking at it as opportunities for success. So Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, maybe we'll have you on the, in the future sometime. Cause I get the impression we could probably talk for another hour or two, uh, sure. but thank you again for, for coming on the show today.
1: Not a problem. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, everybody. Until next time, stay well.